VegCast. Yes, it's another VegCast already. VegCast. VegCast 49 is coming right at you. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, I warned you last time that we would be right back at you with the new VegCast. And here it is. VegCast 49 features an interview with James Levesque of uh, The Witness and Peaceable Kingdom and now HumaneMyth.org. This is an interview that we recorded at Summerfest, and uh, it's an interesting two-part interview, and I'll explain why that is. But uh, both parts, don't worry, both parts will be uh, right here on VegCast 49, and we'll hear about uh, why Humane Myth was founded and what James and Jenny and everybody involved in that hope to do with it. We also have a science fact, uh, one that is not uh, from a breaking science report or study, but one that actually came out a couple months back that I missed at the time and thought was important enough to include. This is on that time-worn topic of the connection between meat eating and greenhouse gases, global warming, and so forth. And we will have a new song for you, a new uh, piece of music that is a Green Beings cut on the Green Beings album, although this is a different version from the version done by Green Beings. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that. And so uh, all that's coming up. Please sit back, relax. And uh, crank up the iPod as we unspool. I know it's funny that I always say that we're going to unspool it. We haven't been spooling uh, VegCast since before the podcast was started. That's an old analog uh, metaphor. i got to find a new way of saying that that's hip and new and fresh uh, for the youth of today. But at any rate, we're getting right on with this VegCast, which I should mention is sponsored by Farm Fresh Express. They make healthy easy. And uh, we're going to turn directly now to our feature interview with James Lavec. As I said, it's a two-part interview. Uh, we'll hear the first part, and uh, then I will come in and explain uh, what happened between parts one and two. Take it away. Right now, joining us on VegCast is James Lavec, filmmaker and filmmaker turned agitator. Maybe I, I don't know how to describe you, James. Uh, welcome to VegCast. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, Vance. Uh, <laughs> Agi- so, some of my best friends are agitators, I'll say that. Well, the reason that uh, we're talking is specifically because you've, you've made a name for yourself, you and Jenny have, with uh, The Witness and Peaceable Kingdom. People know you uh, from your artistic work. Now you've started this whole new project that has uh, more of an activist orientation. I don't know, is there... I mean, it has, you know, artistic components to it, but it certainly has... It's more about uh, doing something within the movement, I guess. And sure. Um, working together with uh, an informal coalition of activists from around the world, actually, um, we're, we're building uh, a website called humanemyth.org. And that website is basically exploring the issue of humane animal products and bringing um, information about that issue both to the general public and to people involved in animal advocacy. So when you say humane animal products, that's that's a kind of a loaded term right there. Are there humane animal products? 
Right. Well, that's precisely the, the point that we explore in, in the website, is that based on our uh, extensive uh, communication and collaboration over the years with people who are investigators of the farming industry, people who have founded sanctuaries, and former farmers, it's, there's a very clear consensus that it's not really possible to raise and kill animals to produce products in a way that could be fairly described as compassionate or respectful or humane. And that the, 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 the idea that it could be done in a, in a so-called humane manner is what we consider to be a myth that is being propagated, unfortunately, by some animal advocacy organizations and also certainly by the animal using industry. Okay. And so, in case people aren't familiar with the underlying principles, there's long been kind of a debate whether we should just push for abolition or whether we should kind of take increments as they come and get whatever ground we can. And um, kind of the point that you seem to be making is that that taking whatever ground we can has gotten out of hand insofar as we've been willing to trade away uh, too much for that. It's not that we should, you know, oppose get, gaining any ground, but then what are we, is that a fair assessment? Is what are we giving away? What are we, what are we trading away for that? Right. Well, over the years, there has been a lot of discussion about this concept of rights versus welfare, and uh, many times the current problems in the movement are explored through that lens. Um, and, and we found that there's another perspective to take, which is to say that even before you get to the question of long-term strategy or philosophical analysis of rights versus welfare, there's an even more fundamental question of uh, telling the public the truth and avoiding conflicts of interest. And the conflict of interest uh, that I'm discussing has to do with animal organizations collaborating with the animal using industry in various ways. And that collaboration results in their, from our opinion, being damage to the, the foundation of the long-term changes we're all seeking. And that, that the cost of that has not really been a part of the discussion. And so the discussion has taken the form of, um, you know, while you're either uh, totally, you know, you're a person who wants everything to change overnight and that's the only thing you'll accept, or you're a much more practical person who is willing to work for incremental change and isn't that more realist, realistic. But it's, it's a more complex issue that has to do with uh, what is an allowable price to pay for certain kinds of uh, changes and what uh, types of prices are just too dear to ever pay. So I have to ask, how, um, how have you been able to take all of these kind of nebulous things and quantify them to a point that, that you're comfortable with? I mean, one of, the, one of my questions um, that came up in a conversation that I was hearing you have uh, had to do with, you know, somebody mentioned gestation crates, and, and you mentioned, well, they were going to go anyway, and they, the person had mentioned, well, you know, animal activists having got rid of gestation crates was a great victory, whereas you were saying, well, was it a great victory if, if they did not actually cause that to happen? And a lot of this has to do with um, questions of cause and effect. I mean, mm. it's, it, there's all these complicated uh, ways that things are, are connecting together and, and it seems like a huge task to be able to say well I can really say that this does or doesn't cause that or that this action over here 
is going to result in this over here. I mean, is that how did you work your way through that thicket? Well, I think that we're always all working our way through that thicket. Um, with regard to this issue, um, what I have done is talked with people. Can we? You can edit, right? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And at that dramatic moment, James was summoned by Jenny Stein, his partner, to get over to the Pascarilla Center where everyone was waiting for him to speak because of a mix-up where James had been slated to speak, but uh, they were short on time, so he had ceded his spot and uh, thought that he had the time free, but uh, that had apparently not penetrated all the way through uh, the management of NAVS, and so we had to all rush across campus uh, where the assembled audience was waiting for James to speak. He did his speech there, came back, and we continued the interview trying to pick up the thread uh, from the point at which we had dropped it, and that went something like this. Cause-and-effect relationships and asking how you confidently get through that and arrive at something where you can say, okay, put down... Um, All right, well, the answer to your question is there's sort of a two-part answer to it. First of all, I mean, I certainly consider myself no expert on different kinds of, all different kinds of activism and all different forms of social change. Um, the area that I do have some expertise in and that our organization has experience in is the area of moral development and the area of cultural change. And that is sort of the uh, issue that brought us into this debate, was that we observed, um, <laughs> we, we observed um, empirically in our work with the public that the message that the public has been receiving about humane animal products by both animal advocacy organizations and the industry is changing the way the public responds to information about injustice being committed to animals. And what the simple pattern that we observed is that increasingly um, members of the public have this almost a trained reaction to exposure to the truth of what happens to animals to change their buying decision, to change the brand of animal products that they buy. They have been taught that this is what the conscientious, progressive person does. So we have confidence of that phenomenon and some consciousness, or or, I'm sorry, some confidence of its origins. Now when it comes to saying, uh, making comments about some of these initiatives, most of my information comes from people that I know who are very knowledgeable about the industry, Uh, In some cases, former farmers who are extremely familiar with its patterns, with its methodologies. And from those folks, uh, particularly Howard Lyman and Harold Brown, um, I've really gotten a clear message that a great number of these situations that have been declared as victories, and the implication being that it was the actions of animal advocates that brought these things about, um, have, have actually had their roots in changes that the industry seems to have been making anyway due to the evolution of their methodology. And in general, they make changes that are in their economic interests. Okay, well let me just play devil's advocate a little bit for you. Um, With, um, let's say, the the Humane Society video, the undercover video that uh, came out, I mean, it had two effects. Uh, One was to 
to bring to light just how realistically horrible mm -hmm. the treatment of cows is, and then the other, uh, theoretically, a seeming effect is that the USDA now seems poised to, and Congress both seem poised to get together and seriously outlaw uh, slaughtering downers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you say that that's the kind of thing that we should be undertaking on the basis that we're hoping that it will cause an effect such as mm -hmm. the uh, abolition of downer slaughter? Well, in, in general, I think that it's very important for animal advocates to continually expose the truth of what happens in the industry. I think doing investigations and um, releasing that information to the public is essential work. And I think that you can make a strong case that uh, the changes that some people would like to see in the industry in terms of husbandry practices and you know the idea that those somehow lead to fundamental change down the line, while probably the single most effective way to bring about those kind of changes, if that's the goal, is investigation and exposure. Um, and I think that the questions, the more subtle questions, come about in terms of thinking about what kind of message is attached to those exposés. Well, in this case, the Humane Society, you know, they, I think PR managed this very carefully and very well, but they paired the whole thing with a demand mm -hmm. to stop slowing down as, as though that would be like the penance for this having been exposed, you know what I mean? So, right. I mean, is, does that make sense to like pair it with that or just go out let the exposure itself be the message and say, you look at this and figure out what's the rational thing. Well, we're not going to you know, I, ask for a favor. I mean, you're, I think you're delving into a, a level of uh, depth of cause and effect and a level of depth of strategy that I, I certainly don't feel that I'm uh, schooled in this particular situation okay. well enough to, to, to really talk about that. But, but I think that the, the point is that if animal advocates continually pressure the industry and, and, and expose the industry and discredit the industry using peaceful, nonviolent, transparent methodologies that are well known, I think that that results in a lot of changes all, all across the board. And there are ways of doing that that have integrity and that do not undermine the foundation of long-term change. And just like everything else, there are ways of doing it that can potentially undermine the integrity of our movement or the integrity of our message. And that's really, we are not pretending or at all presenting ourselves as having all the answers to these very complex questions. What we are trying to do is get people, more people involved in thinking about this more rigorously and having more of a, of a reasoned public debate that has a foundation to it versus, um, you know, a, a some kind of specialized discussion in closed door meetings right. because these are questions that actually a large number of people have the intelligence and wisdom to contribute to. Well, let's let's uh, pick up on that with kind of coming full circle to what humanemyth.org or humanemyth is. I mean, it's a website, it has resources, it has uh, things you can print out. Um, it's about I guess getting a, a conversation really going with fellow activists, and yet part of that is conversations, sample conversations that we should be having with the public. So, where do you see this 
going. I mean, right now it's this very spiffy-looking website. What is it? Is it something that's going to organize people to? I mean, you have a like a declaration mm -hmm. on there. Is there something else that people are, are going to be motivated to do other than just talk to somebody? Well, else? we're. I mean, it, fundamentally, uh, we are toolmakers, and we, we make tools for change and, and tools to help facilitate moral development. And so we see the site as a starting point. And where it develops is going to depend very much on how members of the public and members of the advocacy community use the site, and they, they will give us feedback. But what we are trying to do is offer an alternative model for talking about these things and raise issues that we think are really crucial right now, having to do with two values questions. And the, and the first revolves around being um, straightforward, direct, and honest with the public about what actually happens to the animals that are, you know, used and killed to produce these so-called marine products. And number two, the very important concept of conflict of interest. And we have very serious concerns about the relationship that has developed between some organizations and the industry and the increasing complexity of that relationship and the interdependence and the, the collaborative nature of it, we feel does constitute a conflict of interest and that that ultimately is really bad for our movement. It's, it's a problem because it, it's something that in the past the meat industry has strategized creating these kind of collaborations because it's known in the field of public relations. Um, there's a science of basically uh, sabotaging grassroots movements and that it's really based on dividing them against themselves. And the problem we have in our movement right now is that when you have some advocates promoting animal products of any variety advocates whose calling is to go out and encourage people not to use any animal products now find themselves in opposition to other advocates in this area. That is the kind of situation the meat industry is delighted with. That's what they would like to see happening. And they would like to see a world where there are a few large corporate organizations with whom they have a kind of understanding and a kind of ongoing relationship and then all other animal advocacy is marginalized as being extreme and frightening and and you know somehow not really part of our society and that really goes against my experience of animal advocates and animal advocacy the great majority of whom are highly reasonable ethical people who are working for justice in this cause just like people throughout history have worked for other justice causes that's my experience and the model that the meat industry wants the public to adopt is just completely untrue. And I, I don't like to see that happening. So are you, I mean, you're, you, you have the site up, you have the resources, and you're talking uh, with people and making connections. Are you going to, are you planning to do anything uh, artistically, creatively? Is the next, are you thinking of a, a movie that might... Uh, address this or well it, I mean, it tribe of heart branded it's I mean it's a very interesting topic um, and our new film uh, peaceful kingdom the journey home which we are working on completing right now does dovetail very powerfully with the new website in the okay. sense that it is very much a film about the journey of conscience and it depicts the stories of several people most of whom are from an animal agriculture background wrestling with the question of their own complicity in the use and killing of others and struggling in a very, you know, uh, um, struggling with, with integrity and, and uh, 
you know, with the question of is there a way to do this? What is the right way to do this? Is there a right way to do it? And what's kind of fascinating about the film is people from very large-scale farming background, very small-scale farming background, ultimately end up at the same destination. And it's, it's like this, there, there's this very interesting um, line. And at one end of the line, you have the huge industrialized operations, and most people are familiar with the kinds of horrors that they produce and the depersonalization and the brutalization that all, all parties involved get caught up in. But then at the other end of the line are the you know hypothetical old McDonald's farm type of situations where you have a small number of people on a you know relatively small piece of land you know raising and killing a relatively small number of animals and it turns out that this is highly problematic because this is what happens the more people treat animals in a less violent way in a, in a way that is uh, more in a, in a way more connected to them the the more the animals uh, open up, the more they bond with these humans, almost as surrogate parents, because very often the humans take over their care during shortly after their birth. So the animals literally look at these humans as their parents, and then when it comes time to cash the animals in, um, the, the level of betrayal and, and what is taken away from the animals, the level of violence, it's a different kind of violence, but it's a huge one. Right. And so essentially between those two extremes, Everything, the two extremes and everything in between is equally problematic, is essentially the lesson that we've learned in 10 years of studying this. So I just want to be sure I understand. There was Peaceable Kingdom, just called that. Then I thought you had already done like a, an update or a new version of Peaceable Kingdom. But uh-huh. is this a separate... Like a sequel, or does it still incorporate some of the, the previous pieces? I, I don't know what the word is for what we're doing, but yeah, the, the original Peaceful Kingdom film had a couple of versions that were about right, a few months right. apart. Uh, yeah. Um, and this new film incorporates some of the material from the original and a lot of new material, and it is intended to completely replace it. Okay. It is. It is. A, we're considering it our definitive statement on this topic. This is not your father's Peaceful Kingdom. This is not your father's. <laughs> It may be your mother's peaceable kingdom. It may be uh, your yeah. peaceable queendom. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, that's about all the time we have for this VegCast. Unless you have any more, I would love to sit here and talk all day, but I know you have a lot of, uh, a lot of things to do here. Well, the, the one thing that, I, that maybe you can fold into this is that I, I really feel confident in the wisdom of our community, and I encourage people to think of themselves... Uh, for all of us to think of ourselves as independent educators and activists in our communities and to move away from this idea of thinking of ourselves as members of this or that organization and looking to you know authority figures and experts to tell us what to do I think that we're all smart enough to figure out what works best in our community and what we can most powerfully do based on our own experiences and values and I think that the more people take that journey of self-determination, the healthier our movement will become. I, I really feel that the, the kind of corporate quality of it and the consolidation of control and power and the kind of astonishing lack of democracy in the movement is, is really a problem. We're talking about a lot of very intelligent people who are probably the most capable group uh, in terms of being ready to operate democratically that I can think of. And yet, I see so few democratic institutions in our movement, and I would really like to see that change. 
Alright, well that's, I'll charge you with with that as well as uh, bringing the whole movement together over the concept of uh, the humane myth and uh, replacing that with abolition. You've got a lot on your plate, James. <laughs> you know, you've got a, you got a, it's a kind of a tall order, but I have a feeling that you'll be able to pull it off. Well, I have uh, the opportunity of working with a lot of very talented grassroots activists all around the world, and that's really the basis of everything I do is um, just trying to um, collect the expertise and the wisdom of a lot of people and put it into a form that more people can access. So, Well, that's kind of what I do, you see. I'm, I'm collecting your wisdom right now. So. Such as it is. <laughs> yeah. It's gold, baby. All right. Well, James right. Lebeck, thank you for being on VegCast. Thanks a lot, Vince. From the power on and rolling out, driving with attitude is about to come back in style. Zero to 60, just watch the stage. Try to keep the spread on every stage of every mile. Rate is the distance over time, but the rate that I'm kicking is the M. To the P, to the T, to the max, I can drive 55 miles a gallon. If I let it roll to four, two, four. Been looking for a medal, but I got the score to settle, so I'm gonna put that pedal just a little bit more.
I Can Drive 55. That's a song that I wrote last year for the Where Do You Get Your Protein Maxi single, and which subsequently made it onto the Green Beings album, Electric Green, in its original form, which had me sing the lead vocal, and I was uh, somewhat unsatisfied with that version, so we redid it, we remixed it, uh, and had my good friend and award-winning playwright Michael Hollinger both sing the lead vocal and play some electric guitar here and there and made a new mix of the song, which you just heard. Uh, That's one, obviously, that has to do more with the non meat-eating-related ways to combat global warming. But now we're going to turn to that favorite topic as we listen to this episode's Science Our science fact for this VegCast is the food mile distraction. I don't know if you've heard of food miles. Uh, That's the concept that food has to travel a certain distance to get to you. The further that it has to travel, the more energy you're wasting for the energy that you're taking in or the more energy that you're spending. And uh, oftentimes the consideration is that uh, it is a waste because if you get food from too far away, uh, you're actually increasing your carbon footprint uh, significantly by eating that particular food. And I call it a distraction because While uh, this calculation is certainly true, there happens to be a much more salient and higher impact aspect to food that increases or decreases your carbon footprint. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what that is. But now there is a study that has been done that uh, bears this out. It was done by researchers at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, Christopher L. Weber and H. Scott Matthews. And in the abstract for uh, this study, which was published in Environmental uh, Science and Technology, Uh, They state, we find that although food is transported long distances in general, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with food are dominated by the production phase, contributing 83% of the average U.S. household's footprint for food consumption. In other words, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions uh, involved in transporting food are dwarfed by the considerations of how a particular kind of food gets made. And uh, they go on to say transportation as a whole represents only 11% of life cycle greenhouse gas emissions, and final delivery from producer to retail contributes only 4%. Different food groups exhibit a large range in greenhouse gas intensity. On average, red meat is around 150% more greenhouse gas intensive than chicken or fish. Thus, we suggest that a that dietary shift can be a more effective means of lowering an average household's food-related climate footprint than, quote, buying local, unquote. Uh, shifting less than one day per week's worth of calories from red meat and dairy products to chicken, fish, eggs, or a vegetable-based diet achieves more greenhouse gas reduction than buying all locally sourced food. Now, let's just look at that last sentence. Uh, Shifting less than one day per week's worth of your food consumption from red meat and dairy products to chicken, fish, and eggs even, just that alone would achieve more greenhouse gas reduction than buying all of your food locally. 
So you can imagine, uh, since the production of chicken and fish and eggs also are uh, contribute a uh, much greater carbon footprint than do uh, your vegetable-based diet, you can imagine what the difference would be if we considered that alone. Uh, but you can read the whole study. We'll put that in the show notes. And again, the point is that People bend over backwards to find ways to try to do something about climate change that doesn't involve altering their long-term, deeply held habits. Well, eating meat, I realize eating meat and dairy products is a very deeply ingrained habit that a lot of people don't want to give up. And that's fine if they want to say, I'm just addicted to this, I'm hooked on this, I can't do it, I'm weak. But let's not say... You know, it's more important to buy locally and eat locally. Certainly, I'm all for locavores, uh, but locavores that are going out and buying locally, uh, you know, slabs of beef are just diluting themselves. And that's not just my opinion. That happens to be the conclusion of scientific research. As you hear it here, perhaps not first, but you certainly will always hear it here on the Science Okay, now that we have pumped out two VegCasts in a little over a week, uh, there will be a little bit of a wait for the next one. That'll be out at the end of August. In between, I'm going on a little vacation, but a working vacation. I hope to record a very special podcast interview or interviews during that time, so be sure to check back uh, for that. Or if you don't want to have to check back, you can simply subscribe to VegCast at iTunes or anywhere that you find your favorite podcast. So I encourage you to do that. And I just want to remind you once again that this VegCast is sponsored by Farm Fresh Express. They make healthy easy. I'm hitting the road, and I hope everyone out there has a great August, and we will see you back soon. Of course, thanks to everybody who downloads and everybody who subscribes to VegCast. Thanks to James Lavec for talking with us at Summerfest, even though it uh, kind of screwed up his appearance at, at a plenary session. Thanks to Michael Hollinger for his version of I Can Drive 55. We will see you at the end of August. Till then, get out there and live like you mean it. Veg-cast.